Heavenly Father, I just thank you again for this day. I thank you for your word. I just ask now that you bless again, bless this time that we have. Lord, I pray that you guide my words this morning. Lord, I ask that what needs to be conveyed through your word would be conveyed today. Lord, in spite of me, if need be. I ask this now in Christ's name. Amen. So a couple goals this morning. One is I want you to hear this passage I have for, for you today. We're back in Luke. It's a passage I have for you today. I want you, I'm hoping that you will, number one, I'm hoping that you'll hear it the way the disciples heard it. That's a very difficult thing to do. The sermon from a couple weeks ago really ties into that. And so if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, um, I would encourage you to listen to that one because I spent basically that whole sermon trying to get you to enter into what, what would what Jesus says sound like to those disciples? Well, how would they have received that? Okay, that's my first goal. So I'm going to do a little review this morning real quick, like five, ten minutes review, just to try to enter back into where they were. The second goal is for us to hear this the way we ought to hear this. Okay, that's the, the, then the okay, now, I heard it the way they might have heard this, but how should we hear this? Okay, I'm going to throw in there the passage that we're going to look at today and next week and possibly the week after that, okay? This is, this is a big one. The passage that I have for you today in Luke is one that has been wielded like a club over some people's heads. And that is absolutely not its purpose, is to be done that way, okay? There are passages of Scripture that, and you guys all know exactly what I'm talking about, there's passages of Scripture that people wield like a club, but right when you're down, instead of lifting you up and encouraging you, they like throw these certain passages at you, and it just makes you feel worse. And that's not its intent, I don't believe. So let's take a look at it. Let's start with our review. Like I said, this will take a couple minutes. Once you try to enter in, I will tell you that this will go much better if you can use your imaginations, right? You guys all have imaginations? You just can you imagine things. I know some of you are a little bit older and have probably forgotten how to do that. I'll help you. What's that? Yeah, you lost him. No, no, no. It did just okay. Just to help you out, there's some of you. I'll go with guys first. Some of you guys still think. That you can climb up on ladders and get on roofs and all kinds of things. That is your imagination. Some of you should not be doing that anymore. So see, you have imagination. You still think. Some of you go, man, I could take that guy. You know you could. Okay. You're frail. No. Sorry. I hate frail. No, I'm just joking. Um, but use your imagination. It's it's really it's actually very important to do that. When you when you enter into these stories, there, there's so much benefit from trying to like how would they have felt with these things? Go to verse 18, Luke chapter 9, verse 18. It says, Now it happened as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? Okay, so he's asking this question. And if you remember from a couple weeks ago, this, this has been building for a while. This concept has been building. So you have a few few weeks ago, several weeks ago, the disciples, there was a storm. They were in a boat, and Jesus calmed the storm, and the disciples asked the question to each other after that storm. And Jesus just said, stop, the storm stopped. I mean, you'd probably be asking the same questions. Who is this? You guys remember that from a few weeks ago? Who is this that could just call the storm? Who could do this? There was a demon-possessed man, and speaking... From the demons professed that Jesus was the Son of God. 
We had John the Baptist's disciples. John the Baptist is, where is John the Baptist at, this, at the time of when this is going on? Where's John the Baptist at? By now? In, either in prison or we know that eventually he is put to death, right? In fact, we know for sure by the time that this particular part happened, it wasn't that long ago, he was sending out delegates to ask Jesus, and he sent his, his, some of his disciples, and Jesus said, are you really the one? Right? So that question, who are you, is still there. Are you the one? And the disciples come back, and Jesus shows, yeah, look at these things I'm doing. I'm the one. You're not waiting for another. But at this point, John the Baptist is dead. We get, uh, uh, two weeks ago, we get Herod, King, uh, the, uh, Herod Agrippa, who's over uh, one of the precincts of the Jews. He himself is asking, and we get word from the top, he's going, who is this guy? Who is this? I think he's John the Baptist come back from the dead because he was responsible for John's death. If that, I think, was haunting him, he's John. And Jesus then asked his disciples, who do the crowds, who do the populace, the masses, say that I am? They answer, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And so a couple weeks ago, we went through some Old Testament passages. In fact, in the song that we just covered, in fact, let me go back here. In the song that we just covered, some of these things I was reading here, I was like, oh, yeah, I mean, this is the, this is the Jesus I want to see even today, right? Fierce his battle, um, makes the mountains melt, Right? I mean, these kinds of things, when I look at these words, I go, man, this is the Jesus. And th this, this is very biblically based, and these disciples were saturated in this concept that when the Christ would come, he would rule. And I know it was in here somewhere with a rod of iron, right? Where was that at? I know I saw it in here. I'm not even going to find it now that I want to find it. But this ruling with a rod of iron. Let me ask you a question. Do you, do you feel that at all today? Are you looking forward to when Jesus comes back again and he sets everything straight? Let me ask you this. Do you have any people specifically that you're looking forward to him setting straight? Uh, do you have any systems of government that you go, I can't wait for him to set those things straight? Every secret professed from the rooftops. Are you looking forward to that? Well, in the Old Testament, it talks about the Savior coming. And so these disciples, when they finally figure this out, and this is what happens, verse 20, the first part he says, who, or, sorry, yeah, verse 20 says, who do you say that I am, disciples? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, spokesman of the group, says, the Christ of God. You're the Messiah. The Christ means the anointed one of God. And when they would have thought of those terms, they're thinking, King Jesus. Can you feel that? The babies can. Can you feel that? King Jesus. Ruling with the rod of iron. Coming in. This is the king. And so if you can, with your imagination, imagine that this is what you're picturing Jesus is going to do. The disciples, as Jews, are being ruled by the Romans. They do not have their own system. They're being ruled. And they want more than anything to be a free country again. And so part of the thought when the Messiah comes, the anointed one, is that he will be like King David and unite the Jewish people and rise up and drive them out. 
And so, Peter says to him, you're the Christ of God. This is pivotal. This is the first time that the disciples go, that they're getting it. They figure out this is who he is. We believe it. This is important for the story of Luke. It's important for us as we understand this. He then tells them, he says, uh, he, he charges them, don't tell anybody this. I imagine that even in this moment as he, he's saying these things, they're like, oh yeah, that's right. Not yet, right? I can't wait. Don't put his time. And then he says this, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Those are like the, the really smart people that know stuff. To be rejected by them and be killed and on the third day be raised. I imagine that as they heard that they didn't hear as much raised as they heard the other things. This goes completely contrary to every way of looking at the Messiah that was recorded at the time. Very, very few, if any, I don't think there's any recorded uh, Jewish rabbi that thought that the Messiah would come this way. They knew those things were back then, but they weren't for sure how that tied in. They saw the Messiah as this, and so they put, yes, Messiah, Jesus, you're the Messiah. This is their picture. And yet he said, the first thing that he says, as soon as they get it, I'm going to die. Now imagine if you're one of these disciples and that's just whirling in your head for a minute. This is the first time you've ever heard of it. You're, you're accustomed to this. When you think of Jesus, you think of his death, burial, and resurrection. But can you imagine what it would have been like for them to hear this the first time? Like, what? We know that eventually we're going to hear Peter do things like try to correct Jesus. Like, I know you're the Christ, but you're, you're confused. <laughs> that's not how the Christ is... Which you, some of you have probably done to God before too, right? You're praying, and something happens. You're like, God, I know that you brought that, but that's not the way you were supposed to do it. But then he says this. So imagine yourself reeling in this idea. He's going to die? And then he says this. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, again, it's going to require a little bit of imagination because some of this is entered into our regular conversation. People say as a comment, we all have our cross to bear. This is where it came from. They wouldn't have heard it as something they've heard a hundred thousand times. This is brand new. The cross... We hear that, and you, we have a beautiful thing. You probably have some in your house. Would they have had crosses in their houses as decorations and thought of them as wonderful things? Is that how they would have seen those things? No. It, for them, imagine an electric chair, the gas chamber, lethal injection. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and go grab his electric chair and come follow me. <clears throat> the disciples would have known the concept of carrying your cross. 
they were required, if you were sent to execution, they were required to carry their cross to execution as a symbol of, hey, this person's rebelled against the state. Now the state is on you, and you're going to carry it yourself to your place to die. And so the carrying of the cross was simply a way of recognizing you're on your way to die. So now let's just be honest. What's happened here? The disciples are like, they're finally getting it. They're finally grasping it. Finally like, you're the Christ. Jesus like, you're right. And he goes, I'm going to die. And then the very next thing he says, and you're going to die. Now how would you feel? Is, would you think anybody would have been going, that's not what I signed up for? I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes what happens in this, and we're going to talk about this more next week. Sometimes what happens in this is, is kind of what happens to many of us when we decide to start going to church. You signed up, start praying, start reading the Bible, because frankly, if you're honest, some of you started the whole thing because you needed a divine power to do some stuff for you. Your life may have been a shambles or somebody was ill or whatever was going on in your life. And you're like, I want somebody to fix this. And there's this God, and he's all-powerful, right? So he can do it. And it feels a little bit like that when you start getting into it. And suddenly you have pastors starting to say things like this. Now, like I said, some people can use this like a, a club. Right? Take up your cross and die yourself. Follow me. Think it to be heard. This is why I'm breaking this into two parts, and so I'm going to do this in two ways. I'm going to read through this next part. I want you to, as you hear this, I want you to think about it this way. Okay? You should think about it this way. When you think about what Christ did on the cross, right? When you're thinking about that, do, do you recognize the glory of all that it turned out to be? Wasn't it way better than what the disciples thought it was going to be? Aren't you glad the Messiah didn't just come and kick the Romans out of Israel? What he ended up doing, we look at now, we see it, and we go, that was way better. And we look at that as a glorious thing. And so when you hear that first part, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be crucified, but I'm going to rise again. And then when he turns around and he invites them, you need to start to look at that as an invitation to participate. And there's a very specific reason why I'm saying that. There's an invitation to participate in that glory. When Christ then turned around and said, take up your cross and follow, there's a real invitation for you to participate in that. And you look at it in him and you go, glorious. Do you realize that when he says this, he's attempting to free you from that dreamy life that you think you want to something way better. I'm going to read through this little passage, and then I'm going to tell you what we're going to do next. So let me read through this, just a little bit of commentary. There's absolutely no way that I'm going to be able to unpack all of this today. In fact, I'm not even going to try to. Just hear it. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life, Texas like saying, whoever would will to do that, to try to do that, whoever would save his life, to will to save his life, 
will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does a profit man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. I think there's two ways to learn something. Sometimes, and maybe you've experienced this, you ask them, like, how do you do this, or what's this look like? And they start going through the details. Have you ever had that happen? And they're like describing it to you. Have you ever had that happen where they're, and maybe they've been talking for like five minutes and you're sitting there going, you're, you're, you're trying to give that facial expression, like I get what you're saying, but you know it's not coming across that way because you have no clue what they're talking about at this point. And you start to look, eventually at some point you're looking at them like this. Yeah. I, I, I understand what you're saying. You're not losing. Have you ever in one of those moments had somebody that recognizes that and go, Hold on, let me show you. And then they just do it. And just seeing it, you may not understand all the ins and outs, but just seeing it displayed, you go, oh! Right? And then when they go back and they start explaining the, the details, you're like, okay, okay, now I'm, okay, I get it. That's what I'm going to attempt to do today. This week, I want to show you what this is talking about with an example, with an illustration. This is what I was talking about. This is something I've never done before. I'm actually going to basically read to you a chunk out of a book, okay? I'm not going to read the whole thing. There's a part of it I want to share with you. It's a story about a person who does this. So today, the story. My purpose, three parts. I want to share my purpose in reading this to you because I really wrestled with, should I do this? Or should I do this? What should I do? I, I chose to do this story for three reasons. One, the first reason is not Absolutely not. I'll read this to you, and I want you to know before I even start, this is not to belittle or diminish anything that anybody in this room has ever gone through. Okay? That'll make more sense when we're done. I'm going to read you what this person goes through, the trials that they face, and and, and, and you're going to hear it. I'm going to just you tell you in advance. You're going to hear it. You're going to be like, oh, my goodness. And there's going to be a little bit of it that you're going to go, and this is okay. There's going to be a little bit of it you're going to go, look at what you've gone through, and you're going to compare it to that. And that's all right to do that a little bit, but my purpose is not for you to look at what they go through and look at what you went through and go, why was I griping? Now, some of you might need to do that, but that's not the purpose. The purpose is not to compare because there is some truth to the statement we all have our cross to bear. What you have gone through has been your thing. So my purpose is not to belittle or diminish. Every commentary that I read made mention of this idea of cross-bearing is that it's not. Every single commentary I read made some comment about this is not just having a jerk boss. But you know what? It can be. <laughs> right? Does that make sense? I'll come back to that more next week. Number two, like I've already told you, is to teach by illustration. I think an illustration can teach you something so much more quickly. And so I'm hoping, that's my hope, is that you will hear this and it will be an illustration to you. 
it would be much more of an illustration to you if you can enter into the story. The, the person I'm going to tell you about is a guy, and some of you, as soon as I tell you the name, you're going you're to know where this is going. The man's name is Adoniram Judson. Okay? He was a missionary to Burma, which is today Myanmar. You will need to use your imagination to enter into what he went through and tell yourself repeatedly, this was a real person, and these are things that actually happened to him. And then try to put yourself in his shoes and imagine what it felt like. The third reason I have to share this story with you is to inspire you. I found the reading of this story to be hugely motivational just for myself. It was an inspiration to just keep at it. That's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping you're here this year. Up the afflictions of Christ. It has three different stories in it. This is the book that I'm reading from. And just for you guys, because I know that this helps, I've got, I'm going to have it up here on the slides. Okay? So this is, this is Adonai Jesse. Okay? Lived in the 1800s, about 200 years ago. And he decided to go into the mission field. Let me read some of this to you. Adonai and Anne were married six months. Already, you start to enter into this, can't you? Can you imagine just getting married? Right? Six months later, on February uh, 5th, so they get married, six months later, and sailed for India. After they got married, they sailed for India 14 days later. So already, can you imagine that? Can you imagine getting married and after 14 days sailing to India? They sailed with two other couples and two single men. They were divided among two ships in case one went down. That was the way they had to think. The voyage to India took 114 days. So we're talking about the 1800s, right? So this voyage to India took 114 days. <coughs> this is uh, the Ann Judson, his wife. They get there, and after a time in India... They chose to take the risks of venturing to a new field. They arrived in Rangoon, Burma on July 13, 1813, so a little over 200 years ago. And this is where it begins. The first news from home arrived two years later on September 5, 1815. So can you imagine not hearing anything from home for two years? They had died to the nearness of family. That was something in choosing to follow Christ this way. That was something they lost. Adoniram would never see his mother or father or brother again. He would not return for 33 years. Missionary time in those days was very slow. I mean, this is a different world that we're dealing with. <clears throat> it says it could be longer than this. It talks about having to go out to sea and being apart from each other. Eight years into their mission, Anne was so ill that the only hope was a trip home. She sailed on August 21st, 1821. She returned on December 5th, 1823, uh, two years and four months later. And when she arrived, Judson had not heard from her for 10 months. If you're married and you love your wife, and you're both called to the great work, this is the way you die day after day for a greater good and a greater joy. One of the joys was seeing some of God's goodness in the dark providences. For example, when Anne was recovering in the United States, 
she wrote a book titled An Account of the American Baptist Mission to the Burman Empire, basically his story up to that point. It had huge influence in stirring up recruits and prayer and finances. This would have never happened without her sickness and two-year absence. So this is so this is what I'm hoping you start to see already. This is the purpose of this book. In these bad things, see, see, we can do this, can't we? You can read a story and see it. Do you think that at all, when she was in that, she was thinking, hey, this is, I know the purpose. Do you think she even had any clue what the purpose would be? No. Remember this book, by the way, this plays into the story later. Most of the time, God's wise purposes in their pain were not that clear. <coughs> Through all the struggles with sickness and interruptions, Judson labored to learn the language. So he's trying to learn the language that's there, translate the Bible into that language, and do evangelism on the streets. He's the first missionary to this place. Six years after they arrived, they baptized their first six years after they arrived. They baptized their first convert. Who would have given up? The sowing was long and hard. The reaping even harder for years. In 1831, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, 1831, 19 years after the arrival, there was a new spirit in the land. So it wasn't until for 19 years that it really started, the ball really got rolling. That's crazy, isn't it? How long have we been here? But there had been an enormous price to pay between the first convert in 1819 and this outpouring of God's power in 1831. So now we're going to take a look at what happened in those years. In 1823, Ed Nyerman and moved from Rangoon to Ava, the capital, about 300 miles inland and further up the uh, Irwadig uh, River. It was risky to be that near the despotic emperor. In May of the next year, a British fleet arrived in Rangoon and bombarded the harbor. All Westerners were immediately viewed as spies, and Ed Nyerman was dragged from his home. On June 8, 1824, he was put in prison. His feet were fettered, and at night, a long horizontal bamboo pole was lowered and passed between the fettered legs and hoisted up until only the shoulders and heads of the prisoners rested on the ground. Am I trying to sleep that way? Every night? Years later, when his wife was dealing with deep darkness in her own soul, he recounted to her that he kept his sanity during the prison months, partly by reciting repeatedly lines of William Cowper, uh, William Cowper, Beware of desperate steps, the darkest day, look till tomorrow, who have passed away. As horrible as the conditions were in prison, Judson was spared his reason. He could still think through the possibilities of how this would all work out for the advancement of the gospel. So he's in there thinking, how would this help for the advancement of the gospel? He said to a fellow prisoner named, uh, I guess, Gouger, since here I've been 10 years preaching the gospel to timid listeners who were who wished to embrace the truth but dare not, beseeching the emperor to grant liberty of conscience to his people but without success. And now, when all human beings seem at an end, God opens the way by leading a Christian nation to subdue the country. It is possible by lo my life will be spared. If so, with what ardor shall I pursue my work? If not, his will be done. The door will be opened for others who would do the work better. Anne was pregnant while he was in prison. But she walked the two miles daily to the palace to plead that Judson was not a spy and that they should have mercy. She got some relief for him so that he could come out into the courtyard. The prisoners got vermin in their hair amid uh, the rotting food and had to be shaved bald. 
Almost a year later, they were suddenly moved to a more distant village prison, gaunt with hollow eyes, dressed in rags, crippled from the torture. There, the mosquitoes from the rice paddies almost drove them mad on their bloody feet. The daughter, Maria, had been born by now, and Anne was almost as sick and thin as Adoniram, but she still pursued him with her baby to take care of him as she could. Her milk dried up, and the jailer had mercy on them and actually let Judson take the baby each evening into the village, fettered and begged for women to nurse his baby. Can you imagine? November 4th, 1825, Judson was suddenly released. The government needed him as a translator in negotiations with Britain. The long ordeal was over, 17 months in prison and on the brink of death, with his wife sacrificing herself and her baby to care for him as she could. Anne's health was broken. Eleven months later, she died, October 24, 1826. And six months later, their daughter died. Not to over-traumatize, but can you just put yourself in his shoes? While he was suffering in prison, Adonai had been sustained with hope and with a, with a spirit deeply submissive to the providence of God. You heard it in the words to his fellow prisoner, right? It's possible for my life to be spared. If so, with what ardor shall I pursue my work? If not, his will be done. The door will be open for others who would do the work better. But now that his wife and daughter were gone, darkness began to settle over his soul. Then in July, three months after the death of his little girl, he got word that his father died eight months earlier. This is not glamorized. <clears throat> the psychological effect of these losses was devastating. Self-doubt overtook his mind and he wondered if he had become a missionary for ambition and fame instead of humility and self-denying love. He began to read Catholic mystics and then it goes on. In fact, I'm going to skip a few, few pages here. The next few paragraphs talks about how he refused to eat outside the mission. He destroyed all of his letters of recommendation. He was thinking, man, maybe I was just, maybe there's some pride in there. He was just, just delving into this, this deep darkness. He renounced his doctor of divinity. He gave all of his private wealth, about $6,000, to the missionary board. He asked that his salary be reduced by one quarter and promised to give more to missions himself. In October of 1828, he built a hut in the jungle just some distance from the the mission where he'd been at, that mission house, and moved into this hut on October 24th, 1828. It was the second anniversary of his wife's death, Anne's death, and he'd moved there to live in total isolation. He wrote in one letter to Anne's relatives, My tears flow at the same time over the forsaken grave of my dear love and over the loathsome sepulcher of my own heart. He had a grave dug beside the hut and sat beside it contemplating the stages of the body's dissolution. So besides this hut, he just he had a grave dug and he just sit beside it and just contemplate. He retreated for 40 days alone further into the tiger-infested jungle and wrote in one, of the other, in one letter that he felt utter spiritual desolation. And some of you, this is where I meant to say earlier, remember I said this? I said, this is not meant to compare because some of you have been through deep darknesses and you've said basically the same thing that he said. God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find it in God. Where's he at? 
His brother died May 8, 1829, at age 35. This ended up turning, proving to be the turning point in his walk as he began to climb out of darkness. The next few pages in the book tell of <clears throat> just this, uh, the, the missionary labors that he had from the beginning, especially at this point in his life. He worked on the translation of the Bible. Judson knew the original languages and worked from the Greek and the Hebrew. Four years after he arrived in Burma, he had completed the Gospel of Matthew and then began to work on a Burmese dictionary. <clears throat> in these years, without a wife and children, he confined himself to a small room built for the purpose of being able to devote almost all his energy to refining the New Testament translation because this, these people had, they didn't have, it's not like you could go and get a Burmese Bible. It didn't exist. And pressing on with the Old Testament, at the end of 1832, 3,000 copies of the completed New Testament were printed. He finished the Old Testament on January 31st, 1834. With the first draft, with the first draft of the Bible in Burmese complete, it seems as though God smiled on these labors with the favor of a new wife. Three years earlier, another missionary in Burma named George Boardman had died. His widow, Sarah, stayed in Burma and became a legend in her own right, pressing into the interior with her baby, George. In February 1834, Judson received a letter from Sarah. On April 1st, he left uh, Moline for Tavoy, resolved to court her. On April 10th, they were married. Judson wrote in his journal about their two departed spouses and their new love. Uh, there's no picture, actually no picture of this one, her name is Sarah, um, that they write to each other. There's some interesting things in the book that you can read. These were to be some of his happiest times in Burma, but not without pain, and not, as, and not to last much more than a decade. She was a blue-eyed beauty, and he at 47 had a full head of hair, with no gray, was strong and healthy, and was coming, it seemed, into a season of peace and joy with Sarah. She would bear Adoniram eight children. Five of them would live beyond their childhood. Got that little fact is snuck in there. After marriage to Sarah, Adoniram gave himself to the revision of the Old Testament and for a season preached seven messages a week, one on Sunday morning and one on the other evenings of the week. Sarah was a gifted partner and knew the language better than any but Jetson himself. She translated Pilgrim's Progress during these years before her untimely death. After bearing eight children in 11 years, Sarah became so ill that the family decided to travel to America in the hopes that the sea air would, be, would work healing. They set sail on April 26, 1845 with their three oldest children and the intention of leaving them for the education in the United States when they returned. They left the three youngest behind at the mission, one of whom died before Judson returned. <coughs> Judson had not been to America now for 33 years and was only returning for the sake of his wife. As they rounded the tip of Africa in September 1845, Sarah died. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I've not recorded her dying on the ship in tender detail. You can read that in the book where he talks about being with her at 2 a.m. Asking her. Actually, I think I have some of it here. Her mind became liable to wonder, but a single word was sufficient to recall and study her recollection. On the evening of the 31st of August, she appeared to be drawing near to the end of her pilgrimage. The children took leave of her. Retired to rest, I sat alone to the side of her bed during the hours of the night, endeavoring to administer relief to the distressed body and consolation to the departing soul. At two o'clock in the morning, wishing to obtain one more token of recognition, I roused her attention and said, Do you still love the Savior? Oh yes, she replied, I ever love the Lord Jesus Christ. 
find the affirmative by peculiar expression of her own. That's not recorded. Then give me one more kiss. And we exchanged that token of love for the last time. Another hour passed, life continued to recede, and she ceased to breathe. For a moment I traced her upward flight. Imagine him sitting there. For a moment I traced her upward flight. And thought of the wonders which were opening to her view. I then closed her sightless eyes, dressed her for the last time in the drapery of death, and being quite exhausted with many sleepless nights, I threw myself down and slept. The ship dropped anchor at St. Helena Island long enough to dig a grave and bury a wife and a mother and then sail on. This time, Adoniram did not descend into the depths of depression as before, yet his children, and even more his suffering, had disengaged him from hoping too much in this world. He was learning how to, to quote from John 12, 25, hate his life in this world without bitterness or depression. He had one passion after this to return and give his life for Burma. So he planned for his stay in the States to be just long enough to get his children settled and find a ship back. He landed Octo uh, Wednesday, October 15, 1845. That first wife had written a book, and the publishing of that book, and then the publishing of her memoirs um, by a man named James Knowles in 1829 had been read by hundreds of thousands. Adoniram, he didn't know this until he got there, was a celebrity missionary. Countless parents had named their children after him. He had been the topic of thousands of sermons. His homecoming was a sensation. Can you imagine getting off that boat? What a mixed bag of feelings. What had he just done on the trip there? There's a book, not to give away what happened, think there's a book called The Free Mrs. Judson's. He did, to everyone's surprise, meet somebody else. Judson's stay in the States did not go according to plan. To everyone's amazement, he fell in love a third time, this time with Emily Chubbuck had married her on June 2nd, 1846. She was 29. He was 57. She was a famous writer and left her fame and writing career to go with Judson to Burma. They arrived in November 1846, and God gave them four of the happiest years that either of them had ever known. On their first anniversary, June 2nd, 1847, she wrote this. It has been far the happiest year of my life. And what it is in my eyes still more important, my husband says it has been among the happiest of his. I never met with any man who could talk so well day after day on every subject, religious, literary, scientific, political, and nice baby talk. <laughs> they have one child. Things looked bright. But then the old sickness attacked Adoniram one last time. The only hope was to send the desperately old Judson on a voyage on April 3rd, 1850. To send the desperately old Judson on a voyage on April 3rd, 1850, they carried Adoniram into the, uh, onto the Aristide Marie, bound for the Isle of France with one friend, Thomas Rainey, to care for him. In his misery, he would be roused from time to time by terrible pain, ending in vomiting. One of his last sentences was this. How few there are who, who die so hard. That's not glamorized, is it? At 
Friday afternoon, April 12, 1850, Adnar Dutton died at sea, away from all his family, in the Burmese church. That evening, the ship hove to. The crew assembled quietly. The labor port was open. There were no prayers. The captain gave the order. The coffin slid through the port into the night. The location was latitude 13 degrees north, longitude 93 degrees east. Almost in the eastward shadow of the Adman Islands, and only a few hundred miles west of the mountains of Burma, the Aristide sailed on toward the Isle of France. Ten days later, Emily gave birth to their second child, who died at birth. She learned four months later that her husband was dead. She returned to New England that next January and died of tuberculosis three years later at the age of 37. The Burmese Bible was done. The dictionary was done. Hundreds of converts were leading the church, and today there are about 3,700 congregations, just the Baptist churches in Myanmar, who trace their origin to this man's labor. Again, I want to tell you, my purpose is not to diminish your trials. I mean, I felt some of that. Did you feel any of that? Did you have that sensation every time I turned to a new slide with a new page? Like just when you think, oh, he's been to the darkest. Now it's the, you ever feel that way about your life? If I could just make it through these tough times, then everything is going to go. Did that happen for Adam Judson? That's not to diminish your trials at all, what he went through. It can be helpful. And just to illustrate, I was talking earlier about Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Next week we're going to get into the mechanics of that passage, but I thought this week, let's just see what that looks like. I think the life of Adam does a painting, an amazingly beautiful picture, does it not, of what that might look like? The third reason I gave it was to inspire you. I don't know about you, but I read this, and I, 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 I personally felt motivated to keep at it. To keep at it. I found that when I read stories, not just true ones, but fiction as well, sometimes you read those stories about the hardships. And the ones that make it through, you just go, yes. And they become our heroes. Understand that when Christ says, I'm going to go to the cross and die, but then when he turns around, and he says, now you take up your cross. It is an invitation to say, yeah, I'm, I'm the hero of the story, but I want you to be a part of the whole thing. You get to do some of this too. You take up your cross. Come follow me to this way of death. I hope it as well inspires you to read stories. Um, the one I got this one out of was this book here. Um, it has two other stories in it. Equally as challenging to listen to. Um, I've got another one here. These are the two I've read so far, so I would be willing to loan these out. 
feel free after the service. If you'd like to borrow one of these, feel free. Um, and then I, I got from charity, I got from, I know that we've got somebody in our own midst that has gone through some deep darkness. Is that a way that I could say that? Uh, Tiffany, this is a book that she wrote. Um, I don't know if you were giving this to me to loan, but can I loan this out? Absolutely. Um, I think there's something so important about reading these things, entering in, not just because these stories, these ancient ones, but like in a story like yours, to, I mean, some of you may not be going through as deep things as that in our judgment, but what you're going through, it's very good to say, this is what I'm going through, and have people to go, simply to say, just keep at it. Keep at it. Don't stop. Take up that cross. Follow Christ. He's, he's the, the, the work that matters is, is, is completely full. There's a passage in Colossians that talks about where Paul says, I'm filling up the afflictions of Christ. And that doesn't mean at all that what he's doing, that, that Christ's sacrifice was short or deficient. Like what Christ did on the cross did everything. But there's still work to be done here. Paul filled up the afflictions of Christ through his own suffering to bring the gospel to others. You as well, through what you go through, you have no idea what kind of impact that can make. There are people who need to see the gospel. Not just hear it, but see it in you. You can tell people, God is great. But when you're going through the darkness and you still go, God is great. They will be much more likely to believe that. When you have everything taken away from you and you still go, God is great. They're going to see that God must be great. Don't shirk from those possible hardships that God may lead you through. These passages, take it across, is an encouragement to say, I don't know what's coming. Let's be honest. I, I hope that nobody came to this church because you're like, okay, I'm going to start going to church so that no more bad things happen. I'm going to tell you right now, if that's what you're hoping, that you're, number one, you're not going to hear me ever say that. In fact, I'm going to be honest with you. Choosing to follow Christ, you may find even worse things that you will walk through in this life. And honestly, I'm standing up here to say, embrace it. I mean, your imagination can play all kinds of tricks on you because you can think about all the worst possible things that can happen. Could you do that right now? Some of you, especially when you become a parent, you start thinking about even the worst of the worst things. And then the, there's things that are worse than that. You can, you can imagine all the terrible, terrible things that can happen. I'm telling you, don't, don't, no, no. Take those off for tomorrow. Tomorrow we'll take it off for the things itself. Today you've got this, but be prepared. These passages help you to be prepared to say, man, I, whatever may come, Lord, just help me to go through, to take up the cross. Whatever cross you may have for me in my future, just let me be ready for it. And I want to tell you, reading stories like this can be so helpful. Read the scriptures, yes, but read of these heroes of the faith that stuck with it, kept because when you read him, you're going to find out that Adam Judson, he wasn't some amazing guy. I mean, he had his time of building a hut and sitting next to it, digging a grave beside it and sitting next to it. Right? He kept at it. And even in that middle of that, 
even when you're in that middle of that where you're like, God, I, you're, you're like this great unknown. I can't find you, but I still believe in you. Just tell me to hang on for you. One more day. One more day. I'm going to continue on. One more day. Keep at it. Whatever you're going through right now, keep at it. Whatever it is, we're going to participate together, together in what we, what we call the Lord's Supper. Communion. What's the purpose that we stay? Oh, I'm sorry. There's things that are in here. What's the purpose that Paul states? What's one of the purposes that Paul states in doing this? Do this in remembrance. Okay. So part of doing this is remembering what Christ did. Call to your mind if you need to. So we're gonna distribute this in just a minute. Call your mind the cross. Think about the cross. Think about what he did. Think about the sufferings that he went through. All the way to the end. Aren't you glad he didn't stop before he got to the end? Could he have any moment called 10,000 angels? I know my breaking moment. I don't know about you, but my breaking moment would have been when he was blindfolded and they were smacking him and saying, tell us who hit you. That's when I would have broke. Right? Aren't you glad he did? But understand this Jesus, after he did this, he turns around and he looks at you and he goes, Come on. Come on, let's go. I want to take you on this journey through this life. There's something glorious ahead. But this this I feel like sometimes he looks at me and goes, This is gonna hurt. It's gonna hurt bad. pray for this bread and this cup after I'm done praying. I'm going to take the lid off here and I want to encourage you and uh, I'm going to have Jeff play some music. He's going to sing a song in the middle of this uh, that you can sing along with him. I'm going to have everybody come up and grab a cup, right? A little double cup. Grab the cup. And I just want you to hold on to it and then we're going to go through this song together. I just want you to hold on to it. After they're done with the song, I'm going to lead you through Paul's passage and we'll partake of these things together. I'm going to pray a blessing on this and then they're going to you guys can come on up and grab your cup. Heavenly Father, I, I just want to thank you that um, Adonar and Judson made it to the end, that he didn't stop. Lord, I thank you for the, the example of his life. Lord, I thank you that he was one that looked to you and knew if you went all the way, he just wanted to go all the way and follow and take up his cross and die daily. And man, he died a lot in his life. Lord, I thank you that he did. I thank you for those heroes of the faith. But I pray now that you bless this bread and this cup. I pray that today wouldn't be for us just bread and cup, but it would be a remembrance. Help us to think with our minds and imagine you going to the cross, going all the way. Lord, help us to remember those things in Christ's name.
also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, right? When he had given thanks, he broke it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, after supper, he took the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, I just ask now as we close in prayer, Lord, I ask for your blessing on each person in this room. I pray, God, that you bless them, keep them. Lord, I pray that your grace will be with each one. Whatever cross they are bearing or will bear, Lord, help them to keep their eyes on you and make it to the end. I thank you for all that you've done again. Lord, I thank you for making it to the cross yourself and not stopping.